I need to put my own stuff up here. Good morning, Willowburn. Lovely to be here with you on this Mother's Day morning. Um, as always, it's a privilege to be here and getting to share God's word with you. Um, Crash is open today, by the way, so there's no one organised to be looking after the kids, but if you want to make use of it, go ahead. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, we're taking a break from our Revelation series this week um, and revisiting our Seek the Kingdom series. And so, I'm going to be doing uh, the main text today is from Matthew chapter 5, if you want to head there. <clears throat> uh, verses 8 to 11 is the main part of it. But I will be jumping around looking at other parts of the Bible, so um, if I'm going too fast, stop me and I'll try and slow down. But uh, yeah, I might just, um, might just pray and then get right into it. Lord and Heavenly Saviour, I thank you for your love and your grace toward us. I thank you for the privilege of speaking out your words to your people gathered here today. Uh, Holy Spirit, please come, ac- come upon me, come upon us. Hide me in the shadow of the Almighty so that nothing I say comes from my own understanding, but everything comes directly from you. Please open the hearts, minds and souls of your people gathered here so that they do not see me or hear me, but only hear you. Ask these things in your mighty name. Amen. So I've also got a bit of a grungy throat, but I'm not singing, so hopefully we'll get through okay. Um, You know the drill by now. When I get up here, I ask questions. They're not rhetorical. I expect answers. So we'll do a bit of that today. Question number one, what does the word peace mean to you? No wrong answers, I just want to hear what you think. One at a time, guys. One part of the whole? Mm-hmm. What else? No conflict? What? Quiet. By the way, I did say no wrong answers, so that's... Um, anything else? What does the word peace mean? The ability to rest in the Lord, no matter what's going on around you. Mm, the ability to rest in the Lord, no matter what. Any more? Okay, we're a small group today. Question number two. What have been some of your experiences with peacemaking? Whether you were the peacemaker or the person being made peace too. What's been your experience of peacemaking? <laughs> oh, Karen. We'll get, talk to you later. <laughs> Anyone else? Storm before the quiet. Okay. That's been your experience of peacemaking. Cool? Mine has been getting very good at saying sorry and sometimes meaning it. <laughs> My apologies. Listening. Listening. That's been your experience. Okay, good. So again, I just wanted to get you engaged a bit. So let's head to our passage, Matthew chapter 5, starting at verse 8 and going to verse 11. We're looking at Jesus' idea of kingdom peace, and it may be a little bit different to what we're used to. Let's start reading verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So, fairly short little passage. Um, sort of moving along our kingdom series. We have four blessings or beatitudes here, as they're sometimes called. And some people will tell you that the 
Beatitudes come in sets of four, the first four build up towards um, verse six, which ends in thirsting for righteousness, and the last four build up towards uh, verse 12 here, um, where you're being persecuted because of righteousness. Be that as it may, we have four here. Uh, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when people persecute you because of me. Four of them, but I'll be spending most of my time today on the middle two. I will briefly touch on the others. So, first off, pure in heart. What do you think the word pure means? What does this idea of being pure in heart mean to you when you first hear it? What? Pure is without blemish. Uncontaminated. Uncontaminated. Anyone else? White. White? Clean? Yep. Yeah, pretty much I could have got down and let you guys preach the sermon because that's exactly what um, the Greek word for pure, katharos, uh, basically means to be clean, unstained, unmarked. It was often used um, in two ways for legal proceedings of someone being not guilty, but also in mining and metalworking for something that had been purified through fire and no longer had any stains, marks, blemishes in it. So interestingly, Malachi in chapter three prophesied that Jesus the Messiah would be like a refiner's fire. So I like that little um, yeah, analogy working out there. Also the word heart, another Greek word, uh, cardia, where we get our word cardiac from, for heart, um, which can refer to either our physical heart, doof, 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 or the spiritual center of our lives. So this spiritual heart is a place where our thoughts, desires, will, character, and purpose live. So where all of the real us resides. Um, This spiritual heart is referred to multiple times in the Bible. And being pure in heart here effectively refers to being being clean and unstained in our spiritual center, who we really are. I'm gonna take this off because it's very hot. (laughs) Don't wanna sweat like Adrian. Okay, so um, being pure in heart involves having a single-mindedness towards God. It's a pursuit of God and God alone. No hypocrisy, no guile, no ulterior motives. The pure heart is marked by transparency. People know what you're on about. It's fairly transparent. They can see straight through you. And an uncompromising desire to please God. It's both an external purity of behavior and an internal purity of soul. So, being pure in heart is to give our lives to Jesus and ask him to do his cleansing work. Uh, We've got a song we often sing, uh, which takes one of its verses from Psalm 51.10. It simply says, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. So, this beatitude, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God, is referring to people who uh, have a single-minded pursuit of God and then are thus able to see him, the ability to know God in a truly personal way, to see him without the sunglasses of guilt or shame, tainting our view, if you like. So, how am I going? Not too fast? Cool. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. What is peace then? I asked you at the start, what does the word peace mean to you? That's because we're now 2,000 years away in time and culture from when Jesus actually said these words. And like many other words, the word peace means something very different to us today than what it would have meant to people in those days. We'll demonstrate that. Uh, The English word peace usually conjures up images of a passive state of affairs, maybe an absence of conflict. Somebody said that. Um, Maybe it's um, just tolerance, just getting along with everybody. Don't do anything that'll offend anyone. 
political correctness. It's all peaceful, supposedly. Um, perhaps even it's like the concluding agreement to a conflict, like a peace treaty. That's the image that the word, English word peace conjures up. But that is a very passive word, which is completely different to how it's used in the Bible. It's an active state of being, if you like. So our English word peace is translated mostly from two words. Um, the word shalom in the Old Testament, which you would all know from if you've read your Psalms, is peace, 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 peace be with you, and so on. But that word shalom encompasses a very broad kind of meaning, if you like. Uh, so when it's talking about shalom, peace be with you, it's talking about God's peace coming upon you. When it's talking about shalom to your brother, it's let there be peace between us. It can be used in a variety of ways, if you like. Kind of like our word love. You know, I love my dog and I love my wife, but not the same way. <laughs> um, and then my computer's in there somewhere too. Um, so uh, the Greek word in the New Testament, which is always translated peace, is the word irene. If you put, interesting, if you put shalom and irene together, you get our word serene, another passive word for peace. But the biblical idea of peace is the idea of harmony, completeness, being sound, being whole. Peace is described as being a wholeness, a completeness, a unity, if you like. So here in this beatitude, Jesus is talking about his kingdom and he said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. He's talking about his kingdom. He, in fact, says in the very next verse that the persecuted um, people will inherit it. We know Jesus is the only person that can bring true wholeness to true completeness, right? True peace. Um, there is no peace apart from God. So this is part of his kingdom work, bringing peace, peacemaking. Um, and one of those works where we actually get to join him. Some works God alone can do, but others we can come alongside him and take part in that work, which is fantastic. Uh, that partnership. Jesus is the ultimate Prince of Peace, and so true peace, I would say, is being reconciled to God through Christ. Anyone want to argue with that? No? Okay, good. Let's move along. <clears throat> so throughout the Bible, we see an interesting relationship between peace and righteousness. That's uh, there right from the start, um, but I guess I like verses that spell it out pretty clearly. So I go to Isaiah 32, 17. Isaiah 32, 17 says, The fruit of righteousness will be peace. Its effect will be quietness and confidence forever. So, peace is a direct product of righteousness. Righteousness, of course, is being in right standing with God, having a right relationship with Him. So, it stands to reason, you have a right relationship with God, you get peace as a result. Psalm 85, verse 10, kind of describes this a bit poetically or romantically, if you like. It describes the relationship between peace and righteousness as kissing each other. That's how intimate they are, if you like. They're an intimate relationship. You can't have peace without righteousness. You can't have righteousness without peace. <clears throat> 1 Thessalonians 5.23 describes God and his peace sanctifying the child of God. So peace is a gift of God that actually sanctifies you to make you more like Jesus. The product of righteousness that comes from walking with God. On the other hand, Scripture specifically says that there will be no peace for the wicked. This is one of my best arguments for why peace is more than tolerance, more than absence of conflict, more than just getting along with people. Because Isaiah 48:22 simply says, there is no peace, there is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. Now, if peace was just tolerance, just absence of conflict, just getting along with everyone, just political correctness, this verse could not be true. Because if that's all peace was, there's plenty of wicked people I know, or people away from God, that have peace, 
but biblical peace is much more than that. If there can be no peace for the wicked, peace must be more than a lack of conflict or an absence of troubles. Indeed, it's the product of a pure and righteous heart in right standing before God. So, with that idea of peace, what does peacemaking mean? Any thoughts? Sorry? Helping others know how to find their peace. You guys could just preach the sermon. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, what about peacemaking? Well, it's not about political peace. Jesus was not a political activist in any way that brought any sort of peace. In fact, some would even say he was a political prisoner that was put to death because he made claims to be, you know, God and more than Caesar. It's also not about bringing familial peace in people's families. Jesus said elsewhere in Matthew 10, 34, 36, that he, became, he came not to bring peace, but a sword to divide families. Wait a minute, wouldn't that be a contradiction? How can the same guy say, blessed are the peacemakers, and at the same time say, I didn't come to bring peace? Obviously, he's not talking about um, people getting along as peace. He's talking about something much more. Depends on your definition of peace. Exactly. So if your definition of peace is everyone in the family gets along, well, Jesus is not your guy, because he said, I came to bring a sword to divide them. Jesus' kingdom peace here, I believe, refers specifically to a reconciliation between man and God. It's not about this people group with this people group. It's not about this family with this family. That's a part of God's sanctifying work, an effect, if you like, of people being saved and becoming more like him. But this peacemaking is actually specifically about people being reconciled to God individually. So the word peacemaker... Let's see if I've actually got this anywhere near right. The word peacemaker is used only one other time in the entire New Testament. That's in Colossians 1, 19 to 20. The same Greek word is used. So if you want to go there, Colossians 1, 19 to 20, it reads as thus. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, Jesus, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace, peacemaking, through his blood shed on the cross. Peacemaking refers to the ministry of reconciling others to God. That's my conclusion. So, blessed are the peacemakers literally means blessed are they who lead others to peace with God, relationship with God. I know this might seem like I bang on about this a lot, but you could actually translate this, blessed are the evangelists who lead others to Christ. Um, that's essentially what it's talking about. And this follows directly from what Andrew Bryan taught us at camp about speaking out the kingdom. Not just live in it, that's what all the early Beatitudes are about, that's what all the other aspects of the kingdom, but the kingdom's not just in us, it's in the world through us, bringing other people into it. So if you have peace in your heart from being reconciled to God, you can join him and become a peacemaker by leading others into that place of reconciliation with God. Sometimes this will be just simply leading your children to Jesus, you as a parent, you know, you are a peacemaker to them if you lead them into a relationship with God. But for most of us, it will also mean attempting to fill that role for the people in our spheres of influence, our workplaces, <coughs> our schools, universities, wherever we are. And I want to back up this idea with a passage from 2 Corinthians. Now, I'm not sure which chapter it is. I apologise. I, I somehow didn't write down the chapter when I was typing. But I've got 2 Corinthians something, 16 to 21. <laughs> but... Interestingly, even though I didn't write the chapter down, this I think is the Holy Spirit working, Andrew actually read it this morning. 
the, the passage about the ministry of reconciliation, us being God's ambassadors. What's the chapter? Um, five. Chapter 5. Okay, thank you. Obviously, I shouldn't type too quickly. I missed the chapter. So 2 Corinthians 5, 16 to 21 says, So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. All of this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, called us to be peacemakers, that God has committed to us the message of reconciliation. Sorry, God was reconciling the world to, world to himself, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There it is again, peace and righteousness. Being reconciled to God, lining up with righteousness. <clears throat> so God has given us the message of reconciliation. We as peacemakers, as Christ's ambassadors, are supposed to go about reconciling others to God. That's a simple part of our growth with God. Part of that ministry might involve bringing peace to other people, resolving conflicts, uh, helping other people to get along, mending broken relationships. That's all part of being a child of God, but this specific peacemaking refers to helping people mend their relationship with God himself. Okay, so there will be no real peace on earth except that which comes from Jesus. There will be no lasting political peace. There will be no lasting family peace. You could even say there will be no lasting church peace because there are people in churches and some of them are sinners. Only the personal peace, the wholeness, the completeness that comes through a forgiven, redeemed relationship with God. That's the peace that passes all understanding. How am I going? Anybody got questions? Thoughts? Too slow? <laughs> okay, so this is the next big one. Persecution. The fun one. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so we've all seen the news. We know that there's Christians all around the world struggling with persecution. Um, it's pretty crazy um, what some people will endure for their belief in God. It's people that put me to shame. I was reading a couple of stories just this morning, and I'll share one with you later. But remember how I said there's a relationship between peace and righteousness in the Bible? Now, answer this. Why would anyone want to persecute people of peace? If, if peace was simply being tolerant and absence of conflict, getting along with everyone, political correctness, why would anyone want to hurt those kind of people? Luke? Mm, so when you start mentioning Jesus, peacemaking, trying to help them come into relationship with God, they're fine for you to do it. They couldn't give a damn. But <clears throat> you start suggesting that they need this and they get pretty angry. In fact, some of them get very, very angry to the point where they'll kill you. So, God's peace involves righteousness, living right before God, taking the message of his peace to others. That will offend people. That will get up their noses. The message of the gospel is that no one is righteous on their own. That is going to offend people when you start saying it. You're just not good enough. You're not going to heaven because of the good things you've done. Only Jesus can get you there. 
well, that's pretty arrogant of you. You don't even know what I've done. You know, here in Australia, the worst you might get is a bit of an argument. In all my time as a pseudo-evangelist working for Powder Change, six years so far, I've only ever been slapped in the face once, and I deserved it. I was being quite arrogant to the guy. Um, but that's the only persecution I could claim in Australia. So the persecution that comes here is a direct result of people being at peace with God, living righteously before God and man, and other people having an issue with it. If people are obedient to God, then other people are going to be annoyed about it. When we're peacemaking, we will be persecuted. And yet that persecution guarantees us the kingdom of heaven. That's what he says. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, for they will inherit the kingdom. So, how about the next verse where Jesus says to those who are persecuted, reviled, even put to death, rejoice and be glad. Not exactly this kind of thing you'd say to someone who was expecting death. How about some of those stories we heard coming out of the Middle East? Like people, you know, their wives being raped, their kids having their fingernails torn out and then beheaded in front of them, themselves losing their lives and still not giving up Christ. How would you say to someone like that what Jesus does here? Rejoice and be glad. <laughs> it seems almost glib. But the rest of what he says, rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. This could only be one of two things. A glib theological answer to someone uh, who's suffering from someone who's never known suffering. It'd be easy for me to say to those guys over there in Syria, I'm praying for you. You're going to have a good reward. Rejoice and be glad. But I have never experienced that. So that to me is nothing more than a glib theological answer. I know the Bible says it, but I've never experienced it. So it's right, but far better is actually Jesus himself saying this because he had the concrete knowledge of someone who'd experienced suffering beyond imagination. And within that suffering, found something far, far better. So I want to read you an excerpt from an article um, this story's been around for a while. It's about the 21 Coptic Christians from Egypt who were beheaded by ISIS back in February of 2015. Um, so it's a story that's been around for a while, but I think the message is incredibly powerful. And it was one of the ones I read this morning. It almost made me cry. Almost. But anyway, um, I just want to read this to you. Most of us know the story of the 21 Coptic Christians from Egypt who held fast their faith and were beheaded by ISIS in February 2015. But did you know that only 20 of them were actually Copts from Egypt? One of them, one of the martyrs, was a man from Chad in um, Africa. And he had not been a Christian prior to the day of his beheading. All 21 men had been working in Libya when they were kidnapped by ISIS. But as can be seen in multiple pictures that were released, when they're lined up on the beach to be killed, one of them has darker skin and different features to the rest. This is our man from Chad. The, Coptic, the 20 Coptic Christians were given a choice, deny Jesus or die. They refused to deny him, knowing it would cost them their heads. When the terrorists came to the man from Chad and ordered him to deny, to, deny, to deny Jesus or die, he simply answered, their God is my God, sealing his fate. That's how moved he was by the faith of these Christians. Their refusal to deny their saviour, even at the point of death, literally at the point of a knife to their throats, moved him to make a profession of faith one that would cost him his head as well. Can we grasp the intensity of that story? This man had not been a believer. Up to this point, all he had to say was, I don't believe in Jesus, Jesus is not the Son of God, or something to that effect, and he would have been allowed to live. He could have walked away 
free man. He could have been with his family again. He wouldn't have to die a brutal death that day. But this is the power of the faith of these other 20 Christians. He saw that what they had was so real. He was so moved by their dedication, even to go to death, their Lord, that he realized this had to be worth something. This had to be more than this life. And so he simply said to them, to the Muslims that had captured them, your God is not my God. Their God is my God. And they beheaded him along with the other 20. Recalls the thief on the cross who saw the power of Jesus' life and death and wanted to be in. If we're truly living at peace with God, that's the power of the gospel. That's how we overcome Satan, by not loving these lives, even to the point of death. And let me ask you this, if, if, if people looked at our lives, would they say, their God is my God, I want that? It's a real challenge for me because a lot of ways, like last night, we were at a, um, uh, what's the word when you announce it? A baby shower. <laughs> we were at a baby shower for some friends of ours. Um, and uh, my mate Bambi was there, who I've often talked about, and he's not a Christian. And we were chatting about this, and he was asking about the car and you know, how much it's going to cost to get it fixed and things like that. And so we're just chatting, and I realised afterwards, you know, we didn't talk about one thing of value the entire night. We just talked about stuff. Stuff and things that don't last. And I thought, well, you know, here I am preparing this sermon. <laughs> how different is my life to his, really? Can he look at me and go, his God is my God? No, he sees no need for my God. So I've got to lift my game. Another interesting thing about this story and many other stories like it, think about all the stories you've heard of Christians overseas being persecuted, uh, being killed, all those kinds of things. Have you ever heard any words of self-pity? I haven't either. You hear lots of horrific stories. There's some common themes running through them. They have unshakable faith. They can bear incredible suffering. When they speak, there are words of great love and commitment to Jesus. There are cries for help and for prayer. This is terrible what's happening. But I can't think of a single one that said, Why us? This is so unfair. Why can't they chop off some heads in Australia? These guys are living on a higher plane. What's wrong with us Western Christians that we are so easily diving into self-pity? Oh, poor me, I crashed my car. <laughs> yes, you have a car to crash. Um, and things like that. So th these brothers and sisters who go willingly into death proclaiming Jesus is Lord, that is true peace. That's something that I can only aspire to. So... 2 Corinthians 4, 17 to 18 sums this up really well. It just says, For this slight momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, because we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Let me read it again. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, because we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. The kingdom of God is unseen. That's what we look to. We sang earlier in simplicity, Lord, strip it all away till only you remain. It's easy to sing, Lord, strip it all away until only you remain. I'm not sure I mean that anymore, looking at what these guys... I'm just being honest here. Uh, are any of you praying for persecution to come? I'm not. But if it does, I think that we should welcome it. We can learn a lot from our brothers and sisters overseas. So now, to move away from the morbid uh, tone a little bit, 
Look at all those four Beatitudes together. Do you notice something? There's a progression. They're building upon each other. First, pure in heart, single-mindedly pursuing God. Then, peacemaking, entering into the ministry of reconciling others to God. This leads to persecution because of your righteousness and your walk with God. And finally, you'll have to endure all kinds of evil and insult and persecution for the name of Jesus. These things build upon each other, and I think they mirror, in a sense, our walk with God. This is why Jesus said following him would mean taking up your cross daily. He doesn't intend that we stay comfortable at the pure in heart stage, just passionately seeking after him. He wants us to move beyond that, to become peacemakers, to grow and reach out, to be willing to suffer for him, to be willing even to die for him. The stakes get higher and higher with each stage. But so do the rewards. Look at what they're promised. Children of God inherit the kingdom, seeing God. Great rewards in heaven. So, seeking the kingdom involves personal growth, becoming pure in heart, then burning with a desire to reconcile others to God. Doing that work of reconciliation will offend some, you can expect persecution, but you can also expect the kingdom to grow, both in yourself personally and in the people around you, your family, your workmates, your schoolmates. So seek God, pursue him single-mindedly, and he will equip you for peacemaking and even persecution. His kingdom is worth it. In closing, I just want to share with you my favourite verse on peace, and it's one of the only things that's got me to sleep many, many nights. It just comes from Isaiah 26, verse 3. You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is fixed on you. I learned it in the King James because it's good for memorising. Thou shalt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. Um, and many times at night when I've been totally unable to sleep and my mind's been going all over the place, I've had to say that over and over and over until I can finally fix my mind on God and all he's done for me, all he's doing in my life and in the lives of people around me. And then finally, I can sleep in perfect peace. This perfect peace refers to the safe and guarded state of unity with God, reconciled to him and his purposes, your mind fixed on him, single-minded, pure of heart, peace with God. One last thing to say. Mother's Day. Mothers often bear the brunt or the lion's share of uh, peacemaking in the home, whether it's the worldly sense of reconciling conflicts between kids and trying to make sure that everybody looks after everybody else's stuff and shares everything appropriately, or also the much more um, biblical definition of peacemaking here, mothers are often those that are there when children make critical steps of faith. Dads are often away at work. And so I wanted to honour my mum it was already said by Alan that he attributes his walk with God to his mum. Well, I could say the same. My mum had 11 children and she was, she was definitely the force for faith in our family. She made sure that we read our Bibles. We all were given a Bible when we were very young and we were expected to read it and have answers when we had our family devotions. Mum put up with an awful lot of personal pain in her body, um, but also a lot of relational distance she was a very extroverted person and then she married my dad who was the opposite and uh, they went and lived on a farm and didn't see people very often at all. So I really want to honour my mum because she is pretty much the reason I have faith today. She made sure that uh, I learned about God whether I wanted to or not. And so mum, I don't know if you'll ever hear this but if you do, thank you. And I think that goes out to all you mums here as well. And it's a challenge to us that are dads or not yet dads as well. We can lift our game. 
we can help out our wives and mothers and we can honour them. That's all I have to say. Thanks. Oh, actually, I might just pray to finish up. <laughs> Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you for mothers. Thank you for the incredible gift of reflecting you that you've given them, um, all of your nurturing traits and qualities that we men just don't exhibit that very well. So thank you for my mum, thank you for my wife, and thank you for all the other mums here or represented here. Uh, thank you for the effort they've gone to in leading their children to you and in being a good witness and example. Um, thank you for this word from Matthew 5, Lord. Help us all as we seek to be peacemakers and pure in heart and even to withstand persecution for the sake of your name. Help us learn from our brothers and sisters overseas. Help us not dive into self-pity when things don't go our way, but realise we are incredibly blessed and to make the most of those opportunities you give us. Thank you, Father, and uh, please be with us for the rest of the day and the rest of the week. Amen.